Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. And today's teaching um, is Mark 11, verses 15 through 19. And feel free to read on the screen with us as well. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out all those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, It is not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But have you made it? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared because all because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out into the city. This is the word of the Lord. morning reunion. How's everybody doing today? There we go. I must have grown. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Father, you are good and your mercy endures forever. We thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for your presence. And I pray that you allow us to be open to you, open to what it is that you have to say, open to what it is that you're trying to do in us and through us, for us. Um, We thank you. I pray that you get the glory and the honor out of this moment and our time together. I pray that you word my mouth and every word that will proceed from it. I pray that you open up the hearts and the ears and the minds of your people that they be open and ready to receive, and just have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, one more time. Good morning. I want to welcome everybody that's tuning in online on YouTube, and um, today is going to be a good day. We have, I always get the spicy texts, y'all. I'm telling you, we don't plan this. We don't uh, say, let's give Brandon all the, like, controversial stuff, but we're going to talk about flipping some tables today. Um... But before we we get into that, I want to talk about, the the theme is just getting into trouble. Clearly, because Jesus has a good way of doing that, right? So we already know what happens. He goes in there, he flips stuff. But it made me think, like, what is a good, juicy story that I can share vulnerably with my family about a time that I've gotten into trouble? And I was just such a good kid, you know, that... It was a really hard task. Like, I don't have any stories, but I guess I found one. Um, (laughs) uh, It's actually not from childhood. It's close to the college. That's when the trouble really, really started. Um, I had a birthday party. And my birthday's in the summer, so I was home on college break. I think it was like 19 or so, sometime around then. But my parents allowed me to have a barbecue. Uh, middle of the July, like everything was fun, the food was good, music was bumping, and I was known for, you know, having the place where all the kids would come and like hang out and, and have a good time. 
So my parents let me have, after the barbecue, a little small, quaint uh, party in the basement. Wasn't so small before the end of the night, but needless to say, it was a good time. So during the course of the evening, everything was good. We are generally on our good behavior, all things considered, until they brought out the birthday cake as tradition states. And it had the candles and numbers on it. They're singing happy birthday, all the things. They cut the cake. I'm about to take a slice of the corner piece. That's my favorite piece. Um, and then my friend thinks it would be a good idea to take the cake and attempt to smash it in my face. Keyword is attempt because I use my Jedi tricks to avoid such a plan. And he barely grazes me and the cake misses and goes on the couch. You see where this is going. So I'm like, cool, cool, cool. You're not going to get away with that, though. So what do I do? In response, I take the next slice of cake available, and I get him back. And I don't miss as much, but, you know, the cake hits him, and the remaining icing falls to, like, the floor. So people catch on, and they're, like, picking teams, like Team Brandon, Team Alvin, and we're going back and forth of who's going to win. Team Brandon won. But what that meant was, before long, what turned into 20 seconds of a cafeteria food fight <laughs> in my parents' newly finished basement, uh, and it looked like it could have been going on for a solid 20 minutes of nonstop cake cannonball blasting from one side to the other. We thought it was hilarious. We're laughing. We're having a good time. Who was not laughing was my father. <laughs> when he came downstairs, the look of equal parts horror and sheer amazement. Like, how did cake get on the ceiling? Like, it was a sight that I cannot unsee. There was literally cake on the couch, cake on the wall, cake on the floor, cake on the table, cake on the ceiling, cake on the lights. There was cake everywhere. And he didn't say much. He just looked at me and said, clean it up now. And then he went back upstairs, and I cleaned it up, and needless to say, I, I got into a bit of trouble that day. Um, kind of trouble, but not, not the good kind of trouble. Uh, but there is a such thing as a good kind, a good kind of trouble. And uh, we saw it demonstrated numerous times, and one time in particular that I'll highlight is on March 7th, 1965. Uh, 600 nonviolent protesters crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama to advocate for blacks to have their right to vote. The 600 protesters were met by law enforcement officials who engaged with the protesters uh, with savage and brutal beatings that were televised all over major networks. And this day became known as Bloody Sunday. But the people and the protesters and the organizers could not be stopped. The nonviolent demonstrations continued, and several civil disobedience demonstrations later that year led to the passing of the Voting Rights Act, in which uh, prohibits racial discrimination in voting, and blacks were finally able to have their right to vote. Um, and for that, we are very grateful. The late Senator John Lewis, who was a key leader of those civil rights protests, coined this term of good trouble as a way to describe civil disobedience protests. He says, speak up, speak out, get in the way. 
get in good trouble, necessary trouble, and help redeem the soul of America. John is suggesting, uh, Senator Lewis is suggesting here that sometimes change can only come by disrupting and inconveniencing the systems that enable injustice and allow it to persist. Senator Lewis caused good trouble from his time marching with Dr. King in Selma all the way up until his death in 2020. Now the work of justice is far from done and we see that notion in the excessive force and brutality at the hands of law enforcement officials um, and it's one that we can't seem to scrub from the headlines of history. Just this weekend, the video footage of the brutal and senseless murder of 29-year-old Tyree Nichols at the hands of five police officers re was released for the world to see. I refuse to watch the video footage. I don't need to live with that trauma in my body. Um, but reading the story was enough to grieve my soul as a reminder that there's still more work to do. There's still more, we, we've been striving and we are far from where we need to be. As the systems and the structures of this world continue to fail us, where else can we look but up? In times of grief and unrest, we call out to God, but what do we say that we haven't said already? We ask questions. What can God do when systemic oppression, perversion, and injustice takes place? What is God capable of? How does God even feel about the fact that this is taking place? How does God feel when he's looking at this injustice and he knows that it's going on and continues to persist? What and who should we be praying for? God, if we turn to you, what is it that we even should be asking for in the first place? Here in Mark chapter 11, our Savior, Jesus, shows us his heart toward injustice. Let's take a look at what it says one more time. It reads, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. All right, so what was happening? What was happening during this time? It was the time of Passover. And every Passover, hundreds of thousands, we're talking about 300 to 400,000 Jews from all over would make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. So the city was packed. And the temple could hold about 75,000 individuals at maximum capacity. I have a diagram of the temple here uh, for us to see. So this isn't the temple. The temple was destroyed. It's no longer, um, it's no longer there. But this is somewhat of a replica of what it would have looked like. And as you can see, there's the outer perimeter. And there are those two large spaces on either side of the temple. That's called the outer court or the court of the Gentiles. That's where Jews and Gentiles alike 
could go and gather. Now, if you look in the center, you'll see that large pillar structure and then two lower structures before it. So the very first part closest to the front, that is called the court of the Israelites, right? So only um, Jews could enter that space and they had separate courtyards for men and for women inside that space. Now beyond there, you'll see a door or a wall and a perimeter inside there. That's called the court of priests. Uh, which is the altar of burnt offering. That's where the altar existed there where the sacrifices were made. And then you'll see that tall edif edifice with the gold in the middle of it. That's called the holy place. And only priests were allowed to enter into that space. And in that space was a veil. Uh, and in that veil was the most holy place. It's where the blood uh, was sprinkled for the atonement of sins. And um, that veil could only be entered once a year by the high priest. So really growing up, they only taught me like, oh, there were three places, an inner court, an outer court, and a most holy place. But actually, there was a whole lot going on in this um, temple. So whenever we hear Jesus talking about my father's house, or the scripture says Jesus went to the temple, um, this is the type of structure that they are referring to. So the story in Mark 11 takes place in the outer court. Right, that place where Jews and Gentiles alike could gather in those open spaces. And we see how large of a space that is. Um, so there are three aspects of this story that we're going to look at today. And that's abuse or injustice, uh, misuse, and divine interruption. Again, that's abuse, misuse, and divine interruption. So first, let's look about the abuse that we see in the text. Jewish custom required every male to pay a yearly uh, tribute or a tax to the temple of half a shekel. Half a shekel was about two days wages. And a shekel is Jewish currency, right? It's outlined in the law that this tax, this temple payment had to be uh, paid in a specific type of currency. Um, however, the temple in Jerusalem was under Roman authority and thus the common currency in the in Jerusalem was Roman currency and you could not pay uh, the temple tax of a shekel with Roman currency so Caiaphas who was the temple high priest allowed for animals to be sold in the temple for the sacrifices so they sold doves which was a lower cost option for the poor to be able to sacrifice and other more expensive animals such as sheep or cattle were also sold in the outer court uh, so that people would be able to offer their sacrifices. But a lot of those animals were also um, difficult to find or keep as they were traveling from one place to another. Because remember, these are not just Jews from Jerusalem. They're Jews from all over the area. So opportunistic money changers would set up shop in the temple and exchange the currency at inflated prices and exchange rates and they would keep that surplus money for themselves and get rich off of the fact that people had to go to the temple and see them specifically in order to be able to offer their sacrifices, which was their act of God and worship that they were mandated to do in the law. So in reading this text, it reminded me of how I'm trying to aspire to be a world traveler. One of my goals in life is to visit all seven continents, including Antarctica. I don't know how I'm going to make it happen, but I want to go. I like a good penguin, don't we all? 
Um, so whenever uh, I'm traveling, I always like to travel in a, with some of the arriving countries' currency on hand just for safekeeping in case I need something once I get there. Um, and I don't know about you, but one very privileged but honestly annoying financial frustrations is when you go to the currency counter and you give them XYZ dollars and then they give you back the money, but it's not the same as the value that you gave, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like, so you give $20, but the, the same amount is not the equivalent of $20 in that you get back. Uh, somebody made money off of the fact that I needed money, right? I handed something in and they kept some of my dollars in order to give me back less of what I gave them. Now, I can admit that this sounds like a bit of a snobby uh, illustration, but to think of that same experience, that same reality of giving money in order to get something uh, of lesser value in return, uh, think of that in the terms of a Jewish pilgrim making their way uh, for the high holy day. And imagine being one of the poor Jews that used all the resources that they had just to be able to navigate the travel to get to Jerusalem. And now that they arrive, they need access to a live animal, right, in order to be able to conduct the sacrifice. Their only likely option was the temple, and the prices that they would have had to pay were egregiously inflated. How unjust. In the temple of God, this injustice was happening the money-making schemes were in full effect, and the people that needed support the most were often victims of being people that just filled the greedy pockets of these money changers. Houses of worship are supposed to be sites of justice, sites of mercy, hospitality, and integrity. These are things that Jesus takes very seriously, and we should too. Abuses of power of God, abuses of power and mistreatment of God's people is not something that God tolerates or takes lightly. It's not something that we should just sweep under the rug or allow to turn ourselves to turn a blind eye to. Because far too many people have been hurt by the church at large. And I encourage as many of us as possible, especially here at Reunion as a new and growing church, to commit to constantly examining our hearts and our culture to make sure that even our church here a union is a place for all people and that our friends and our brothers and sisters in Christ and whatever expression of faith uh, that they find themselves in are holding to the same standard. So not only was there abuse taking place in the temple, but there was also misuse because the outer court being the only place that all people, including Gentiles, could assemble, the merchants decided to set up shop and pervert the temple's purpose. The purpose of the temple was never to be for the exchange of goods and money. The purpose of the temple was for there to be a place of worship, a place of prayer, and a place of sacrifice for the people of God. The house of prayer became a house of commerce, a den of robbers, to use Jesus' exact terminology. And it was never intended to be a bank or a for-profit institution. And even in modern times today, it seems like the, the, the idea of the house of worship is highly commercialized and being reduced to simply historical monuments or architectural artifacts. Take a look at what you see. What is this? 
church. This is uh, the Church of the Holy Communion, an Episcopal church uh, right here in, in Manhattan on 6th and West 20th. Uh, or should I say, it's what used to be an Episcopal church here in Manhattan on 6th and 20th. The church was built in the 1840s and it remained as such until the parish merged with two others and the property was uh, given over to a drug rehabilitation home in the 1970s. Uh, but the drug rehabilitation home did not last. The business uh, went under. And then the church turned into this, a nightclub. The rehab center closed. And in the 80s, the property was sold to a popular nightclub chain. And the church took shape as a nightclub for almost 40 years. So as you see, there's this, still the stained glass windows, all the infrastructure of uh, the church on the outside, but on the inside, there's a whole entire nightclub, and it stayed there for 40 years. But it wasn't just a nightclub. After the nightclub stopped functioning, the building uh, stopped functioning as a nightclub in 2007, but it reopened as a literal marketplace in 2010. Same church, same building, that's now a literal marketplace. But it didn't stop there. It closed again in uh, 2010, and in 2014, the property was repurposed as a gym, a fitness facility. Now, I don't know about you, but there's something about hitting the reps in the choir stand that really just, you know, gets those gains like you've never seen it before. You know, we love a good, you know, altar bench press. It's just, it's just, it's not the same. Christ-like cardio, maybe that's the name that they'll give the, the gym. But even now, the, uh, this, this gym is closed. Um, it closed down in 2021. I don't think they were able to make it through the pandemic. So the edifice is still there, but it's no longer a church. It's no longer a house of worship. And people have said, oh, this is a nice bit of architecture. Let's gut it and multi-purpose it when it was designated for a house of worship. All of the walls, all of the stained glass windows say worship, uh, but that's not what it has been used for. It's been sorely misused. So the inside is not matching the outside. We see a secular reduction of sacred space. We see it now, and Jesus saw it then. The purpose of the house of worship has been so sorely misused and warped. So how, do, how can we, as worshipers here, uh, make sure that we don't end up taking for granted the house of worship? Um, we can think about this space that we meet in. You may look around and see a dance studio. When I enter this space, I don't walk into a dance studio. I'm walking into the sanctuary. I'm walking into our place of worship, our place of community. This is a safe space. This is a holy space. This is sacred ground because of what we do when we get here. So I encourage everybody to rethink our space if you haven't already. When we walk through those doors, we're not just walking into paradise. It doesn't matter what's going on in the studio behind us or the ones below us. What we do when we gather here is establish this as a house of worship. And um, 
let's honor that space. Amen? So we have the abuse in the temple. We have the misuse of the temple. But Jesus could not just sit around and allow this abuse and misuse to persist in his father's house. So we have the divine interruption. And Jesus decided to stir up some good trouble. Let's go back to the text. Verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and, somebody say and, sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So Jesus drove out those who bought and Jesus drove out those who sold. He drove out those who were working the system. And he drove out those that contributed to the system's continuation. When it comes to abuse, misuse, perversion, and injustice that takes place in the house of God, there are no innocent bystanders. If you are not a confronter, you are a contributor. Those who set up the table and sold were just as offensive to Jesus as those who approached the table and bought. Regardless of where they found themselves in the storyline, Jesus said, this has to stop. So Jesus goes in, he flips tables, and he disrupts the status quo of the temple. Did he end all money exchanging once and for all in that very moment? No, I highly doubt it. I don't perceive that he flipped every single table in a 75,000 occupancy temple and chased out every single money changer, but he interrupted the process. He interrupted the process. He made it more difficult for injustice to happen, and it was a demonstration, an act of protest, and he made a statement. Jesus caused some good trouble, and he did it because he loves us, and he did it because he loves his father's house. So as I was studying, um, I was really intrigued to see that Jesus cleansing the temple and flipping the tables and all of that chaos and drama that ensues happens in all four Gospels. Um, we see it in John, in Mark 11, Matthew 21, and Luke 19. Uh, but there's a debate among scholars about how everything went down. Um, some scholars say that the occasion in uh, John, which takes place and is seated in the beginning of his ministry after the uh, wedding where he changed water into wine, and then Mark, Matthew, and Luke are all situated at the end of Jesus' ministry during Passion Week just before he was crucified. So there are some debates between scholars. Some say that these were two separate occasions. Other scholars, other scholars say that John just put it out of order. Uh, some say that John was speaking thematically rather than chronologically about the events. But the truth is we won't dive into that today because we're going to talk about both occasions. <laughs> we're going to go over it all. So let's take a look at John and see um, what, John, what John tells us because John spills some tea that we don't see in the other Gospels. All right, let's read it together. Well, you don't have to read out loud. You can read along with me. Uh, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your father's, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was talking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. All right, so here we see it again. Jesus enters the temple, he sees the injustice and the perversion in his father's house, and he enacts a divine interruption. But in John's account, we see something that we don't see in the other gospels. Jesus made a whip out of cords and chased out the wrongdoers. Jesus made a whip of cords. Made it. He didn't pick one up. He didn't purchase one somewhere. He made it himself. And it dawned on me, that takes time. That, like, you don't just, ooh, let me just take some cords and no, you got to take, you got to find one. Maybe that one wasn't long enough. He found a second one. Maybe, I don't know, did he braid it? Or was it a single one that was just really, really long? We don't know. We weren't there. Thankfully, I didn't want to see it. <laughs> um, but he made and took the time to construct and put together a device to chase out the wrongdoers. What is this telling us? Those that are familiar with the story might have imagined Jesus walking in and just Flipping stuff and turning, sorry, Jake, turning stuff over. Uh, I'll pick it up. <laughs> turning stuff over and just flipping things and just, he walks in and then two seconds later, he just goes to town, right? Just has a total fit of rage. But that's not what the scripture is suggesting. This was not just a random fit of rage. He had time to think things out. He had at least a few moments to pause, he had time to premeditate and think about what it is that he was doing, and he went into the temple on a mission to flip things upside down. It was calculated, not just simply reactionary. And that is what Jesus came to do in this world, to flip things upside down. He came into the world as a baby and flipped Herod's authority into a tailspin. He taught in the synagogue as a 12-year-old child and flipped people's expectations inside out. He entered society and healed the sick and the lepers and flipped their isolation into a life of community. He challenged religious leaders and teachers' moral code, flipping the narrative into one of grace and redemption. He entered the tables in Mark and John and flipped the tables of the money changers. 
He came into Roman society and flipped the government completely on its head. But most importantly, he came into our world and our reality filled with death and of sin and of shame and brokenness. And he flipped sin and separation on its head and he became the bridge to father that we needed and always wanted but never had. Jesus enters and Jesus flips. He gets close to us. He gets involved in the nitty-gritty. He stands face-to-face -face with the darkness, and he interrupts it. Our Savior is one that intervenes. Our Savior is one that interrupts. So we're, we're left here in this in-between space where we know what God is capable of, and we know what God can do and we haven't seen it in full entirety yet. And the truth is, that's the nature of the spiritual dynamic of this already but not yet world. We know that there will be a time for Jesus to return. And all of this that we know to be in the world will cease. And there will be a new heaven. There will be a new earth. There will be a new experience with God of harmony and of peace and of justice for all eternity, that we as believers, if we put our faith in Jesus, we can experience that. And we know that Jesus rose from the dead. And he's in heaven making intercession for us. And we're desperately groaning and waiting for that restoration to take place. But we haven't seen it yet. But we know that God is all-powerful now. But the restoration is still yet to come. So what do we do and how do we act and what is God doing and how is God feeling in between? How is he experiencing what we're experiencing now? God, what can God do when systemic oppression, perversion, and injustice takes place? He can intervene and he can interrupt. What is he capable of? He's capable of intervening and interrupting. How does God feel? He feels consumed with zeal. What or who should we be praying for? We should be praying for God to intervene and interrupt every system and every individual that is enabling a system of injustice, oppression, abuse, and misuse in our city, in our country, in our churches, in our homes, and in our hearts. So I'm finished. Van, y'all could come on up. Um, thank you all for joining me on this journey today. But I want you to know that God is not the type to just sit back and think that everything is okay with how things are. He is broken over this. He is disturbed. He will intervene. It may not be in the moments that we want it or in the ways that we want it, but he's been intervening all along. And he will continue to do so until his day of his return and the perfect reconciliation of all things. He, sorry, I didn't get to pick it up, Jake. He beat me to it. But God is not willing to just stand there. It's in his nature to intervene. The injustice that we see in our world, he sees. And we look to him to overturn the oppressive and evil systems in our country and in our world. 
And it doesn't just apply to that. Sometimes even the major and minor inconveniences in our lives are divine interruptions to get us back on track with God's will. Sometimes the trouble that we experience, the trouble that we face, the trouble that we are enduring in life on a day-to-day business, the things that we cry about, the things that we call on God regarding can be used as good trouble for God to realign and reassess some things within our dynamic. The question is, how will you respond to that trouble? How will you respond to Jesus flipping tables in your life? Will you flip the tables back over and set up shop and continue in your usual routine? I hope not. Jesus is calling out to every individual in this room to draw near to him. Allow him to flip whatever he needs to flip for you to draw near to him and keep him as a supreme authority in your life. Make the decision to follow him today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for causing good trouble, even when it doesn't feel good to us. Lord, your plan, your will is good, it's true, and your love for us is burning with a bright passion that you will chase, you will pursue, you will flip, and you will do what you need to do in order to restore the dynamic and the order that you have ordained for our lives and our world. So, Lord, as we endure this in-between time of injustice and of pain and of trouble and turmoil and abuse and misuse, I pray that you keep our hearts pure and keep our hearts aligned. Whenever we go astray, bring us back to you. I pray that we submit to your flipping. I pray that You allow us to learn and grow. I pray that we honor the house of God, and I pray that we honor seeking you and worshiping you and meeting with you. We don't take it for granted that we can do so openly and freely, for there are many that are under persecution and do not have that right and that access. Lord, we pray for the leaders of our world, the leaders of our country and our communities, I pray that their hearts would be pricked with a passion for justice and harmony and mercy. I pray that we will learn what it is that you truly desire and want and that your values will be values of our own. I pray that you turn our hearts and our minds back to you. Lord, we as believers are the temple of your Holy Spirit. It's not contained to an edifice. It's not contained to a building structure. We are living, breathing, moving temples. And we pray the scary prayer. Flip the tables. The areas of our heart, the areas of our lives, the areas of our faith that need to be interrupted and disrupted. Lord, we are scared to say this, but flip those tables. Cleanse us, Lord. Cleanse our temple. Cleanse our way of being and doing so that we can be the vessels that you have ordained and called us to be. And we know that this can be done 
through faith in Christ Jesus can only be done through faith in Christ Jesus and the sanctifying work of your Holy Spirit. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.